through that, explaining that, looking at scripture um, together and taking time to answer some questions. Um, so that information is available to you. I've added stuff to the back table. Um, stop by there occasionally and you can find out what we're learning together as we seek God's leadership in this direction. Have you ever made a promise that you weren't able to keep? Notice that I said you weren't able to keep. It isn't that you did not intend to fulfill your word, that you were making an empty promise. You really didn't mean it when you said it. That's not what we're saying. But rather, circumstances changed from the point at which you originally made that promise. Sometimes this happens for parents. A parent might tell her children that they'll go for a hike this upcoming Saturday. She's told them that early in the week, but by the time Saturday arrives, the weather forecast has changed. And that promise will go unfulfilled. Not because of anything wrong in her heart, not anything wrong in her intentions, but her lack of control. She can't control the weather. As humans, we sometimes have very little power to keep our promises because of future obstacles that we're unaware of when we make that promise. Now, this doesn't mean that we should find ways to get out of keeping our word in any way, but it does demonstrate the reality of our limitations. You know, sometimes we have trouble holding on to God in the midst of difficult circumstances because we believe he functions kind of like we do. He has limits like this. When my life is not going according to plan, is God still caring for me? Maybe the circumstances have changed. Will he hold me fast? How will he keep his word in this situation? Because this isn't how I saw things going. But our God is not like us. When he makes a promise, he already knows how every detail will work out according to that promise. He has the power to keep every word he has ever spoken to his people. He is not like us. Because he's always faithful to his word, you then can always trust him. No matter the circumstances. No matter what you can't see or can't understand. God tells us he's our shepherd even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We need not fear evil because he is with us every step of that journey. As we've moved through our study of 2 Samuel, we've seen David first become the king of Judah and then the king of all Israel and then king in Jerusalem. He brings the ark of God then to the capital city and in chapter 7, he receives amazing, amazing eternal promises from God. So that now in chapter 8, the stage is set. Here in the first 10 chapters of the book, we see David on the rise. This is one of the highest moments in that rise. We're going to hear a record of all that God did to give him victory. So this is a summary of David's accomplishments here in chapter 8. But that's not what this chapter is primarily about. 
It would be very easy for us to read through this chapter, get mired down into the details of victory after victory, and miss the point that the Spirit is intending to impress upon us this morning. What we're to learn is that our God is faithful to keep all of his promises, every single one. He does this through the victories he gives to his king. Let's look at chapter 8. We'll read just verses 1 through 6 as we begin this morning. This is God's word to us, his people. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them and took Metheg Ammah out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. And he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadad-Ezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought him tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Let's ask for God's help as we look at the text together. Father in heaven, We thank you for your word. We thank you for a God who speaks promises to his people. We thank you that you are not like us, that you're not limited in your knowledge or in your power to keep your word. When you make a promise, you have every ability to keep it, and you do. So we praise you. We humble ourselves before you. We want to worship and trust you this morning. Help us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text will teach us this morning that God's kingdom advances by God's promises through God's king over his enemies. This morning we'll consider together David's victories, then David's dedication of the spoils of those wars, and finally David's rule. All of these point to God's faithfulness to his people through his king. So first, God's king utterly defeats God's enemies. Verse 1 begins with the words, after this. Chapter 8 is a summary of David's conquests over many years. It's not a strict chronology. It says, after this, and and in chapter 8 then, he's going to stack one victory over a people after another. These all didn't happen immediately after these promises of chapter 7. It's gathering together much of what happened in David's life. This is all in fulfillment of God's promises, and that's why it's put after chapter 7. We'll see what we mean as we continue. The author will list in order several specific nations that David conquered, and you can practically picture in your mind's eye Israel's expansion moving forward just like the points of a compass, north, south, east, and west. He's naming nations that are all around them, and the kingdom is expanding in every direction. In verse 1, the author first reports David's victories over the Philistines to the west of Israel. Since the days of Samson, the Philistines have been a terrible, incessant cause of conflict and fear for Israel. 
David wages God's holy war against them. And finally, in verse 1, we're told that they're both defeated and subdued. This strange word here in uh, verse 1 really tells us that David gets into the heart of Philistine territory and captures it all. In verse 2, we're told that David defeated Moab then to the east. This was a persistent enemy of Israel all the way back to the time of Moses. God says in Numbers 24, 17, he promises, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter, a king, shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush, he shall crush the forehead of Moab. This is promises hundreds of years old. This group of people had been a persistent foe, torturing, pestering, fighting against God's people. And now finally, through his king, God is fulfilling all his word to them. He has a plan. Even when that plan takes hundreds of years to accomplish. When I was 16 and a junior in high school, my family and I lived in central Illinois. The winters were not terrible, but they were a good bit colder than here in South Carolina. We actually got a decent amount of snow each year. We had a full winter season. One day after school, I was driving to basketball practice at the end of winter. uh, And at this point, I'd only had my license for a couple of months. I had some experience driving on the snow and ice, but not much. Though we had some remaining snow on the grounds, the, the roads were clear and dry. So I was pretty confident that day, driving to practice. We only drove a few blocks. And when we got to the parking lot of the church gym, because I was so confident, I didn't really recognize at first that it hadn't been plowed, that it had about a thick, uh, one-inch thick sheet of ice still on it. So again, being the inexperienced driver, I pulled in, again, not, not going really super fast, but faster than the conditions would have allowed. And when I went to stop, what do you think happened? I go skidding across that sheet of ice, only to stop when I ran into the other church's parked van. That ruined practice that day for me. I very much felt like I was out of control on that sheet of ice. That's a frightening feeling, isn't it? In that moment, in our lives. Sometimes God allows circumstances into our life where it feels we are absolutely out of control. We have no answers to what's happening, to what he's doing. We have no recourse. There's nothing for us to do other than to cast our dependence on our God who is in control. Just think of how frightening it is in our lives when we believe that things are out of control. That there's no purpose behind the events of our lives. But this passage promises being fulfilled like this. God working out details over hundreds of years shows us that our lives are never out of God's control. No matter the hardship, no matter the obstacle. No matter the sorrows or chaos in our world around us, we may not have control, but this passage shows us that he does. As we see God keeping his word, even hundreds of years later, we're encouraged that he has a plan. 
David's victories continue to be listed as he conquers both in the northwest and the northeast of Israel. First, David defeats the king of Zobah. In conquering this kingdom, we read that he hamstrung all the chariot horses. And again, these are some of the details that we can get caught up in. We want to think about them, but not make them the focus. But why would he do this? The narrator does not tell us specifically, but there are several likely reasons that are posited by scholars. First, God's word to the future kings of Israel in Deuteronomy 17 prohibited them from multiplying many horses and chariots, from putting their hope in human power and ingenuity. David says as much in Psalm 20 verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Second, it's not likely that there's enough to care for this amount of of animals back in Israel. This would have exploded their need to care for these animals. So this wouldn't be helpful to take them back there. And finally, chariots were not as useful in Israel, their homeland, because of the rugged terrain. Certainly, they're a formidable weapon on the open plains, but again, not as effective for Israel in their homeland. And by taking this action, David is not, in effect, killing these horses. They still would have been useful on a farm, pulling maybe smaller loads. But the point is, they'd no longer be useful in war to attack, as with a chariot. Think of what God had promised his people in Deuteronomy 20. This is what we see fulfilled with David. God said, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you victory. David also captures Syrian territory as recorded in verses 5 and 6. This is significant for Israel. It's the first time, it's the first recorded Israelite success in gaining control of Damascus. It's an incredible victory for David and Israel. This is a prominent and important city. It's located at the intersection of major trade routes. It would have been a massive benefit for Israel's future economy. And David, we're told, is able to recover a vast amount of treasure in this conquest. Finally, if we skip down to verses 13 and 14, we read of David's victories in the south over the Edomites. Look down there with me. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants. And notice this refrain. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Now I'll put a map up here to show you what's happening for Israel in each direction. Their territory is expanding. And certainly this chapter is bloody and filled with violence. Yet this was both a common practice of nation states. They would war and capture each other and kill troops and capture citizens and take them as servants. But more importantly, this was part of God's command to Joshua and Israel all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. They were to drive out the nations, subdue them. Yes, in war, kill some of them. 
so that they would not pervert their, their worship of God alone. And that had not happened with Israel for centuries. Think of how Judges, the book, tells us again and again, everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king in the land. Israel had never fully obeyed God's commands, but now in this chapter, David is obeying God's word to Israel and conquering the nations that God had specified. It's amazing to note the amount of territory that David captures. And what's amazing about it is that this has been God's word to Israel since he spoke it all the way back to Abraham. The territory that David is recording as having conquered is precisely what God had promised to him. Genesis 15, 18, God said, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. God repeats that promise in the Pentateuch. He promises Moses and Joshua the same. In Deuteronomy eleven twenty four. we read, Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates, to the western sea. No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he promised you. So finally, now, through David... God's king, he's fulfilling these age-old promises. Here's finally a leader who's willing and able to obey all of God's word. Now all of these victories are summarized by the phrase, the chorus almost, at the end of verses 6 and 14. And the Lord gave victory to David. There, that Hebrew word is translated in other places as saved or rescued. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. God is accomplishing all of these victories. The narrator wants us to understand very clearly that from beginning to end, David's successes are the Lord's successes. Remember what God had just said in the previous chapter, 7 verses 10 and 11. God said, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. That's the promise to Abraham back in Genesis 15. So that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. So God is faithful to his word. Now we need to understand that just because of all these victories are piled up here before us in this summary form that we don't think of them as coming cheap or easy. David's known as a man of war. He spent years seeking to secure peace and stability for Israel. In Psalm 60, we read of the difficulty of just one of these battles, of the battle that we read of with the Edomites in the Valley of Salt. The title of Psalm 60 reads, A psalm of Israel when he strove with Aram Zobah and when Joab struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. Now listen to how that psalm begins. It gives you more of an understanding of the difficulty of that battle. It describes the incredible fear and hardship This is what it felt to be in the midst of that battle. 
David writes, you have rejected us, God, and burst upon us. You've been angry. Now restore us. You've shaken the land and torn it open. Mend its fractures, for it is quaking. You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. But for those who fear you, you've raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow. Save us and help us with your right hand that those you love may be delivered. And then in 2 Samuel 8, the narrator records, God did all of that and gave victory to David. The point here is that God is faithful even in the midst of the most terrible battle, even in the midst of the circumstances that you may be facing right now. Maybe nobody else in this room knows what's happening in your heart and mind, but your God does. And this passage illustrates he's with us. He will keep his promises when the night seems darkest. He certainly has a plan. So first, God's king utterly defeats God's enemy. Second, God's king selflessly consecrates the rewards. Look back at verses 7 through 12 now. Verse number 7. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadad-Ezer and brought them to Jerusalem from Beta and from Berothai, cities of Hadad-Ezer. King David took very much bronze. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadad-Ezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadad-Ezer and defeated him. For Hadad-Ezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also David dedicated to the Lord together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. From Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. In verses 7 and 8 we read that David recovered great amounts of wealth as the spoils of war. So some he took as the spoils of war. In verses 9, some bring tribute and gifts to him, seeking peace, seeking to come to this victorious king. And what would David do with all of this wealth? God had again told the future kings of Israel in Deuteronomy 17 not to acquire for themselves treasures of gold. So what would David do with this vast wealth? David, who fully understood and recognized that God was the true source of his success, dedicates these treasures back to the Lord. Think of what he could have done in gathering them to himself. This will be one of the downfalls of his son Solomon, who did gain wealth and use it for himself. Now, according to the records of 1 Chronicles twenty-two fourteen, 14, the cumulative amount of these vast tra- treasures is staggering. It records that there were 100,000 talents of gold or 7.5 million pounds of gold collected. And 1 million talents of silver or approximately 75 million pounds of it. Do you see what God is doing? This is massive. He's bringing in the wealth of the nations to his king. 
The wealth that God brought to David here, it's overwhelming. And yet we know that David set these aside for the construction of the temple. Think of his faithfulness and steadfastness in that desire that God said, no, not now, you don't build me the temple. And yet David is determined to still lay aside treasure and wealth and resources that that temple may be built. Solomon's able to build this incredible structure because of what God does for David here. He's not using it to serve himself. It will serve God's people for generations. Now these verses in the center of the chapter describe David's faithfulness to God's covenant. The defeated nations become David's servants. They bring him vast amounts of tribute and gifts. And David, in response, demonstrates that he is truly God's servant. And he immediately consecrates this treasure back to him. That word dedicated means consecration, to see as holy, to set apart as holy. The Levites were set aside to guard the treasure. It wasn't seen as the wealth of their nation. Throughout David's reign, the Lord is blessing him with victory and David responds by giving what he received back to the Lord. Can you see application for us in this today? What has God given to you? How do you view those resources, no matter how small or great? Are they his? Are they for his work? Or do you hoard them to yourself as your own? God calls of every follower of Christ to give of his time, his talent, his treasure. Just as we see in the New Testament, David is responding to God's grace in his life by giving back to him freely, without constraint. Do you see how God honors this kind of a heart? So God's king utterly defeats his enemy. Second, he selflessly consecrates the rewards. Third, God's king righteously rules over God's people. Let's read again now in verses 15 through 18. Verse 15 is a summary statement again. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all the people, all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Elihud, was recorder. And Zaok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Sareah was secretary. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and Pelethites. And David's sons were priests. There in Chronicles, it says they were given some high official position around the throne. David is setting up wisely an administration. Now, the whole course of David's reign is summarized here in verse 15. Again, this is a summary chapter saying what David's rule was like in general. This isn't to say at all that David was perfect, but he was a good and godly king. He was a good king because God was with him. David was now ruling over all God's people, we read, because God had fulfilled his promise to Israel to provide them a king who would protect them and provide peace to their land. He did what was just and right for all his people. In 2 Samuel 23, verses 3 and 4, at the end of his life, David writes a very beautiful description 
of what godly leadership, what godly authority is supposed to look like. And we're supposed to recognize how very different it is from our hearts as we hold on to authority. Listen carefully, verses 3 and 4. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Do you hear the intention, the health, the good, that godly authority brings. Men, can I encourage you to ask yourself, is this how I'm leading my home? Would this describe the way that I exercise authority? Is this the way that I'm seeking to lead? This is certainly how our God tenderly cares and exercises authority in our lives. Think of the picture here. Godly leadership is like that first light of dawn on a cloudless morning. It's like a spring rain that causes growth to almost explode out of the earth. Think of how quickly, in just a few weeks, we've seen the trees go from just bare sticks to bursting with color. Does your leadership cause others to prosper and grow? If you look behind you at those who are following you, are they healthy and strong because of your leadership? Or are you leading as a way to elevate yourself? Your whims, your wishes, exercising control for the sake of your own good. One good but humbling way you could find out how you're doing as a leader, as a leader in your home. Just ask. In a moment of quiet, of humility, ask your spouse, is my leadership, does my leadership look like this? How could I grow in this? Ask your children. They'll tell you. Parents, how are you tempted to exercise authority over your children? Are you exercising it in a way that would hinder their growth in godliness? We can do that in many ways. That can show up as spiritual apathy or an unwillingness to obey what God has commanded every believing parent to point their child to Christ in every moment. Through the easy moments, through the difficult ones. That's the challenge, isn't it? But that's the opportunity as well. Are you intent on pointing them to God or just satisfied with having children that might be easier for you to manage? Does this picture of good leadership, godly leadership, sound like a parent who's always ready to snap or let their kids just have it? Perhaps your authority is seen at work. Are you leading justly and righteously there? Is there growth and health around you there? Are you exercising influence in a way that benefits those you're to be serving? Do you see how God intends for his people to exercise leadership by David's example and instruction. In this passage, God is demonstrating that he will keep all his promises through his king, no matter the obstacle or the enemy. Can you see how this passage is not just a review of Israel's history? It's also a preview of God's faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ, the king. Victory comes at a cost. 
It does not come cheap. The final son of David first conquered by spilling his own blood, by sacrificing himself. Victory came at the great expense, at great expense to God's son. And yet this is only the first portion of Christ's victory. Listen to how the Spirit describes his second coming in Revelation 19. And as you listen, I want you to see if you can pick up some of the same themes that we see here in 2 Samuel. Especially verse 8, or especially chapter 8. Revelation 19.11 and following it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. He is clothed clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horse. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name. A name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 2 Samuel 8 then not only tells us the history of David, it shows us a preview of our coming king. This chapter proclaims to us an important message. Our God is faithful to his word. He's faithful to fulfill his word even when it seems like he's forgotten or he's not at work in our lives or we can't see him. He's faithful in times of opposition and in times of ease when we think we don't need him. This passage assures us that God will do all he has said in his time and against all opponents came across a good illustration of humble, faithful commitment to keep promises this week. After his wife was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, college and seminary president Robertson McQuilkin found himself torn between two commitments, two divine callings. Robertson knew he needed to make a decision about his career. The school, the seminary needed him 100%. His wife needed him as well 100%. In the end, Robertson says the choice to step down from his position as school president was easy for him to make. And perhaps the best explanation can be found in the letter he wrote to the college to explain his decision. He writes, the decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it, but so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic, but there is more. I love her. She's a delight to me. I don't have to care for her. I get to. It's a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. Here's a man willing to keep his promises in spite of things that he could not have controlled in his life. It's a helpful example to us of human faithfulness. But even as stirring as an example as this, even as exemplary as it is, it only begins to reflect dimly God's commitment to keep 
his promises. David's many victories recorded in this chapter are not his own. They're not a demonstration of his incredible military mind or military skill. Or instead convincing evidence of God's faithfulness to his promises for the sake of his people. What successes or benefits in your life do you need to see through this lens as well? What do you have in this life that has not been given to you by the good hand of your God? And all of this leads us to conclude because God is always faithful to his promises to you through his king. King Jesus, we can entrust our lives to him. Can I encourage you to take a moment as we're concluding, just take a moment in your mind and consider how God has been faithful to you. Begin thinking of maybe some of the bigger ways that stands out to you. Maybe some of the smaller ways. Where have you seen his steadfast commitment to you that you can't credit to any other person? Consider just how many ways God is faithful to you. When you see God fulfilling his promises like this, what kind of response should it provoke in us? I can think of at least two this morning. First, it should cause us to praise him for he is faithful. It is good and right for us to regularly pause in the hurry of our lives and consider the ways that he's proven faithful to us. Can I encourage you to multiply the benefits of rehearsing, remembering God's goodness to you? Share those praises. Share God's faithfulness with your family and your friends, your children, your church family. It is right and good for us to take more time to pause and praise. Second, this should also cause us to ask him again to keep his promises. This should fuel our prayer life. We're to ask him to keep his promises when we're struggling or unsure. As we saw last week in chapter 7, our prayer life should be shaped by God's words to us and we should ask him to fulfill them in our lives in whatever way he deems best. So we might pray, Lord, you have promised to give me the words to speak when I need to share the truth of the gospel with my unbelieving neighbor or coworker. So give me the words to say this week. Or Lord, you've promised to never leave me nor forsake me. Help me to believe that this week when I'm anxious or frustrated at work or at home. God commands us, cast your care on him. Now here's the promise, because he cares for you. Isaac Watts captures what it is to trust in God's faithfulness. He pens this poem. Happy is the man whose hopes rely on Israel's God. He made the sky and earth and seas with all their train. His truth forever stands secure. He saves the oppressed, he feeds the poor, and none shall find his promise vain. Let's ask for his help as we close in prayer now.